Well, good morning. There's just so much going on now. You see, uh, contemplating exactly what to say to us as a congregation with Harvey and Houston and Irma and all of Florida, right? And we just need to be in prayer about all of that. Um, I also uh, want to share with you, as you have seen probably in the news, Officer Bill Matthews and his passing just up really down the road over here on 12. Uh, and they are a family that's connected to our church. Uh, Sean, who is his wife who survived, and their seven-year-old Wyatt. Uh, some of you might know Beth Fable, that Sean is her sister. And so I've had an opportunity to be very much involved in this and never have been involved with a law enforcement funeral before and, and, and just didn't realize how strong that fraternity and sorority of officers really is. It's incredible. And I had a meeting yesterday with the mayor, Wyzetta, city planner, and a whole group, and, and uh, Dee, our caring pastor from our church, and myself were sitting around as they're, as they're getting ready to serve this family. And it, to a person, every person around that table said, it doesn't matter what we want, we want to do what's best for that wife, and that little seven-year-old Wyatt. And I thought, man, that's our heart. I, uh, I remember we did a series here in the spring that just kind of said our vision as a church is to do whatever it takes to serve this West Metro in the name of Jesus. And, and soon after that, the very next Monday at the end of that series, Mary Singleton was fatally killed right in front of our property, and God used that doesn't cause those things, but allows us to respond, and he allowed us to serve. And so we have the opportunity to serve again and to do this in a, in a, in a way where I believe we can touch lots of people's hearts in the name of Jesus. And, and so we're going to kind of live up to our vision. We, we have the review here at the church from 3 to 8 on Wednesday. And then Thursday will be the funeral at 1 p.m., which is going to require for us to have some people to help and to serve. And, and in some ways, I'm going to ask our congregation, because as we met yesterday, they said, you know, there'd be some officers who will fly in from New York, Chicago, L.A. They said you could expect three to 4,000 people. I thought, well, none here. And they said, we'll, we'll provide whatever, whatever they need. It's going to be taken care of. If, if we... And they said, we did a service up in Aiken for a church of 300, and we set up TVs and screened it with tents for officers all out in the parking lot. So I'm just going to encourage us as a body, um, one of the things I might encourage us to do is, I know we want to support them, but instead of maybe being in here, we might be out there serving. And I don't know how many servants we're going to need, but we, we set up a little um, site called serve at yzetafree.org. Very creative, isn't it? Um, if you're able to help serve in some way on Wednesday or Thursday, and I don't know if you'll be able to use or what our response will be able to that, but we're going to need some people to help set up and do different things here. And if you're willing to do that, just please just you know, email us at serve at yzetafree.org. Tell us maybe a little bit about the day or, or whatever. If you're willing to serve, we would love that. Um, and I say all that 
um, because we will be canceling. We, I, I think of um, our family ministries team. I think of our adult ministries with Shelly and connecting and all the rest. They've been working really hard on this Wednesday night community kumbaya, which we do, and it's an event for us as a body. But we're going to set that aside because we're here to serve. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to pray. And I don't know where God will lead you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray, whether it be for in your heart right now, if it's Harvey or it's Irma, and the people all affected by that, or if it's for Sean and little Wyatt and all the families infected by that. I'm just going to ask you to take a moment, and we're just going to be quiet, and we're going to offer up prayers to the Lord. We're going to ask him for wisdom. We're going to speak, pray for our leadership in our nation to make good choices around these disasters. Father, hear the prayers of your people as we speak to you from our hearts. Father, there's very little silence in our world. I think in our communities, I know in my life, Sundays are a time we just want to pause, stop the kind of roller coaster of life and and meet with you. As, As Lindsay said, that our hearts would connect with you. And we're asking you would use us, you would use others who are flowing in your love to touch and connect more hearts to you. The heart that is running away from you, the heart that's angry with you, the heart that has rejected you, the heart that is indifferent, my heart that gets just busy with stuff. Our hearts, it gets so caught up in our agendas. We stop and say, connect with us again. Fill us with yourself and that which is most important, we pray. Father, we know that this life you have given us is good and that you are a good God and yet it is filled with brokenness and pain. And it touches us from time to time or touches those around us. And so we're asking that you would come and love and support those who are in need right now in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. I uh, read a book this summer in preparation for this series, which I've called The Good Life, which is kind of an interesting title with all the stuff going on right now. Um, but in a recent bestseller, and I'll just give you the subtitle, it's a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. And this is written by a secular author. 
And he says, our culture today is obsessively focused on unrealistically positive expectations. Be happier, be healthier, be the best, better than the rest. Be smarter, faster, richer, sexier, more popular, more productive, more envied, and more admired. Be perfect and amazing and produce, sell, and close a deal before breakfast each morning while kissing your self-ready spouse and two and a half kids goodbye. Then fly your helicopter to your wonderfully fulfilling job where you spend your days doing incredibly meaningful work that's likely to save the planet one day. But when you stop and really think about it, Conventional life advice, all the positive and happy self-help stuff we hear all the time is actually fixating on what you lack. It lasers in on what you perceive your personal shortcomings and failures are are to be already. And then emphasizes them for you. You learn about the best ways to make money because you feel you don't have enough money already. And you stand in front of the mirror and repeat affirmations saying you're beautiful because... You feel so you're not beautiful already. And you follow dating and relationship advice because you feel that you're unlovable already. You try all kinds of goofy visualization exercises to be more successful because you're not successful already. Ironically, he says, that the fixation on the positive, on what's better, what's superior, only serves to remind us over and over again of what we are not and what we lack and of what we should have been but failed to be. After all, no truly happy person feels the need to stand in front of a mirror and recite that she's happy. She just is. There's a saying in Texas, the smallest dog barks the loudest. A confident man doesn't feel a need to prove that he's confident. A rich woman doesn't need to convince anybody that she's rich. Either you are or you're not. And if you're dreaming of something all the time, then you're reinforcing the same unconscious reality over and over that you are not that. You ever felt that? You see that happening? I mean, it's really interesting. He goes on to state, he says, as a result of all this lack and sense of inadequacy that our culture is feeding us, he, he says... The business world, because it makes good business sense, feeds on that. And so everyone... And their TV commercial wants you to believe that the key to a good life is a nicer job, a more rugged car, or a pretty girlfriend, or a hot tub with an inflatable pool for the kids. The world is constantly telling you that the path to a better life is more, more, more. Buy more, own more, make more, be more. That's the good life. And you're constantly bombarded with these messages, with everything, all the time. You gotta have a new TV. You gotta have a better vacation to your coworkers. You gotta have this, gotta have that. And then, and then he makes a statement. It causes you to become overly attached to the superficial and fake. To dedicate your life to chasing a mirage of happiness and satisfaction. The key to a good life is not caring about more. It's caring about less, caring about only what is true and immediate and important. From a secular author. Now, I'm not going to share with you all the rest that he goes on to say, but what I want to share with you is this. 
You look at the word of God in, in, in the Bible, and the Bible will tell you from its first pages all the way through that God wants you to experience the good life. Here's the truth. God wants you and those you love to experience the good life. And the Bible sums up God's desire for your life with words like shalom. A good Hebrew person, when they would meet someone, would say shalom. And when they'd leave, shalom. It uses words like blessed. There's actually Hebrew words and the words that Jesus used that is, is used in the Greek. Happy are those or blessed are those who are, what? In poor, mourn. You remember the Beatitudes? It's all, that, those words are words of what God says is a good life. The word joyful is another word that he uses. This joyfulness that is not some kind of happiness based on that outside of us, but it's, it's that which grows in our heart and it's connected to something much deeper than mere experiences. You see, from the very beginning, you look at Genesis chapter 1 in the very first verses, God creates all this world, and, and as he's creating in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, as mankind is created and God blesses us as his image makers, as those made in his image, He says to them, go flourish, walk with me, enjoy one another, yourself, and all of this boundless creation I have given you. I kind of paraphrase, but that's that's the gist of the imperative. And then also things go really bad, Adam and Eve, and then you know you have problems with your kids, right? And then the world all kind of goes south, and, and, and you have all the sin enters, and God if, at one point is despairing for what has been made, and he gives the world a big bath called a flood. And he starts with Noah and over again. And, and here's some of the very first words that come out of his mouth just a few pages over in chapter 9. It says that God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, and again, go flourish, walk with me, enjoy one another, yourself, and all of this boundless creation I've given you. I have made this life, and enjoy this good life. And time and again, as you read through the story, you just can go through chapter after chapter, go to chapter 12, he comes to a guy named Abraham, he pulls him out, and he says, I have blessed you in order that you will bless the nations, go flourish. And as it goes on, once again, people get caught up in all kinds of other things and they begin to substitute for what God wanted to be in there so people would experience this good life. And at one point, his people, Israel, divide into two nations. They're upset, they're angry, and they turn away from God. And God comes along and he gives them what I call a timeout. Parents, have you done that before? He basically comes to them through a nation of Syria and then through Babylon and he takes these two uh, nations that have been at war against one another and are all about themselves and he puts them in a timeout chair and they're in this timeout chair and and he comes to these people and in Jeremiah 29, 7 through 9 while they're in a land that's not their own he says this build homes and plan to stay plant vineyards for you will be there many years many Marry and have children. This is, again, this is like the gold flourish that you see in Genesis 1. And then find mates for them and have many grandchildren multiply, increase. Don't dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of Babylon, this place where I've carried you. Pray for her. For if Babylon has peace, so will you. 
Go flourish. Work for peace and prosperity. Live with me in such a way that those around you experience the good life, this peace and prosperity, which in the Hebrew, literally the words that are used there three different times is the word shalom. It's the essence of the life that God has called us to that is good. Kevin Palau, who is the son of the evangelist, some of you may have heard Louis Palau in his book called Unlikely, Setting Aside Differences to Live Out the Gospel, he writes these words. In the midst of Israel's humiliation and bewilderment, questioning how God could have allowed such a thing that they would be put in this timeout chair in Babylon. God speaks to Jeremiah back in the land. He sends a letter, Jeremiah does, to these exiled leaders far away. And can you imagine the letter they're hoping to get through their prophet from God? They're hoping to get this, I think. Sit tight, deliverance is coming. I'll take care of those hated Babylonians. They'll get what's coming to them. Just hold on. But what they actually got was what I read you a few moments ago. Settle down. Flourish. Work for shalom. Live and experience the good life of my presence right there, right where you are. Which is to me kind of an interesting thing because when I think about that, I think about we are all in different locations in our life, whether it's a career, whether it's in our home, whether it's in a neighborhood, wherever we are, we are called just like that with these messages. Because sometimes when I read some of the things, in fact, um, Kevin Palau writes, uh, so much of what I read online from some of my brothers and sisters these days has a tone of exile. They feel that we don't belong here anymore and that our country has been taken away from us and that the values are all wrong. They long to escape, but why? He comes to Israel and he says to them, because the reality was this, they were going to be there a while. So what they were to do is where you are at, live this good life. Begin to experience the shalom and pray for it right here where you are. Because if it's experienced here, others will experience it as well. Here's the problem with the Bible translations uh, around this word shalom, which we often just translate peace. There isn't a good way to translate this word. It is a rich and vibrant word. It is filled with hope for every good thing in this life. It's what you wish for for your children, which really makes sense as God the Father wishes that for us. It's what you hope for your family. It's what you pray for when you think about your loved ones. Palau writes, I've often heard my dad describe shalom as every good thing you want for your son and daughter on their wedding day. Love, peace, security, financial stability and success, joy, happiness, friendship, and a daily reality of God's love and presence as you go through life. It's all encapsulated in that word Shalom. That's the good life. And Jesus came and he taught the same message, yet he warned against some tendencies. There's a couple tendencies that normally happen in life. And Jesus shares a bunch of them, but here's a couple of them that he shares quite often. And I'll share here, here's where we can get confused and off track. First, the good life isn't about the abundance of things. It's, it's not about Stuff. He warned against this on a number of occasions. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, at one point in the Sermon on the Mount, he stops and he says, Do not store up for yourself on earth 
treasures, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. That's not the good life. Watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. But what I find is interesting is God has blessed our nation, hasn't he? You think about how God has blessed our nation over the years. We enjoy a standard of living that no other nation has enjoyed. I do think some of it's tied up with the Judeo-Christian message and tied up with the values that have come from the Bible. There has been in some way God has blessed us because part of prosperity and growth and creativity and all that stuff comes out of his hand. Our roads, think about it, our roads, I've traveled in different places around the world, our roads to our vacation and resort places are better than most roads around the world. You know that? I was going up north to Brainerd this last week and they're making these huge two-lane roads. Who travels those? Well, everybody does in the summer, but anyway. And what's really interesting, everyone wants what we have. What do they associate the good life with? They associate it with materialism. There's this idea that we get more stuff. And the Church of America, I think, has in some ways gone to different places throughout the world and, and we have brought the gospel of, of materialism rather than the gospel of the good life that is mentioned here in the Word of God. Do you remember the comedian George Carlin? He did the hippie, hippy-dippy weatherman, remember that? He would kind of do this forecast and he would say, tonight's forecast is dark. Um, he had this great comedy routine about Americans' obsession with stuff. You'd, you'd, you'd start out as a college kid and you'd have a box full of stuff. Well, this is years ago, now I have a car full of stuff. Anyway, <clears throat> and, and, and then they would put all that stuff in a place in a room called a closet and they'd have a place for their stuff. And then once you graduate, you got a degree so you could buy more stuff. So then you'd buy a home with a person that you loved and you'd have stuff. And, and then eventually you'd put another box on it called a garage, maybe another extra for more stuff. And, and if you really needed more stuff, you'd put a thing in your backyard called a shed, which had, and you'd just go on and on and on. I read a magazine, in a magazine, Slate magazine by a guy called, his name is Tom Vanderbilt, and he says, we have, we are the self-storage empire. Our country now possesses some 2.63 billion square feet of personal storage for our stuff. All this is contained, according to 2015, I couldn't get the most recent um, numbers on this, in 54,000 facilities and is an industry that now exceeds the revenues of Hollywood. One in ten American households owns self-storage space. So I thought, let's do a little test. <laughs> no judgment here. We love you. Everyone's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible. What's your definition of the good life? Because what's in your heart, Jesus said, is what you're going to go after. I mean this seriously to stop and just to think for a second. What is your definition of the good life? What is shalom? The second thing Jesus says he can be confused about is not just the abundance of things, but it's a confusion about the gospel being the absence of trouble. And Jesus warned about this as well. He, he just basically wanted to say again and again, listen, you choose to follow me and to move into this good life and to experience shalom, you're going to experience trouble. 
He was just hours from suffering on the cross and dying. And he was speaking to his disciples. And at one point he got very just plain about what he was saying. And they go, oh, finally you're speaking plainly to us. We get what you're saying and we understand now that you come from God. I'm kind of going, really, now you understand that after all the stuff he's done? John 16, this is what he said. Now we get it and we understand. And, and, And we'll follow you now. We get it. Jesus turns to them. With this quick reply, in John 16, 31 through 33, he says, really? Now, I'm going to paraphrase. You finally believe? Here's the truth. In moments, when the first bit of difficulty comes, you'll actually take off running for your lives, and you'll abandon me. But I'm not abandoned. Isn't that amazing? You'll run for me. I'll feel It'll look like everyone's gone, and there's no one, but I'm not abandoned. Because the Father's with me. Sean, a little white, are not abandoned. I don't know where you're at. I know you may feel the deep pangs of loneliness, but if your heart is open and you just will begin to just say, God, I'm just, I don't even feel it. It's not about feelings, but I trust. I, I believe this word. It's in your word. I am with you always and will never forsake you. God is with you. If the Father is with you, you are never abandoned. I've told you, says Jesus, all this so that trusting me, you will have unshakable, assured, and you will live deeply at peace. The word is shalom. And in this godless world, you will continue to experience trials and difficulties. Take heart, I've conquered the world. The good life, folks, is not about the absence of trouble. It is not about a life without pain. Another occasion, Jesus stood before a crowd and he said, don't worry about tomorrow's troubles. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I can imagine them kind of going, but Rabbi, Rabbi Jesus, uh, really, seriously, I thought the good life meant no troubles. Kind of a kuna matata, you know? A worry-free life, uh, what is it, a worry-free philosophy, whatever it is. And, and, and he goes, No. In fact, Jesus seems to indicate that the sign of someone seeking a trouble-free, painless life is the person who has no roots in God. The parable of the sower, at one point, he says such a person follows Jesus only for a short time, and as soon as the trouble comes, they just scatter, because they're not looking for the good life of shalom. They're just looking for a life of irresponsibility. See, if the truth is that God wants us for you, this is very true in the word of God. And he gives you different words and he says it throughout the word of God. He says it even when you're in bad places. I want this for you. Then the question is, so what is a good life? What is a good life? The good life is all about healthy, growing, and loving relationships. It boils down to that. We get, our stuff, we get ourselves on all kinds of tizzy and all different kinds of things. The good life is all about that. We lost the good life the day we lost our connection with God, which is a, created a loss of connection with ourselves and with others and with this creation. The Bible says that we fell. Our pride and our sin and the accompanying fear broke the unhindered connection we had with God, with others, in ourselves, and even with all creation. 
And this brokenness impacted everything. And the good life God wants for you is not the abundance of things, nor is it the absence of trouble. It is about a shalom relationship with God, with yourself, and with others, and with all creation. It's about relationships. And we get that so easily confused. I do. And here's the key to the good life. Okay, if you want the secret, the key that opens the door to the good life for you, it begins with God. And it filters everything else. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus came, the thing he said to people was this, follow me. I'm a rabbi and I will teach you how to live in this relationship with God your Father like I'm living so that you can live well with others and that you can begin to understand and know yourself and as a result of that be connected to him, to yourself, to others and all creation. Get to know me. In fact, if you look at that, just go through the gospel, especially the gospel of John, you'll see there's some astounding claims he makes. He makes these, these kind of claims that for most people you would lock them up on the third floor where you'd have to have buttons to kind of press to get out again. He says, I'm the bread of life. Listen to these. In John 6, I'll just read a few of these. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And he adds this little thought at at one point in verse 10. I have come that you may have this life and have it to its abundance. I want you to experience the good life. I think it's interesting, pastor and author John Orper writes, perhaps one of the greatest barriers to faith is not the things we don't know about. It's not the things we don't know about, but the things we know, but yet we're wrong about. You catch that? We may know it. The barrier of faith isn't that we don't know it, but it's we know it and we don't have it rightly understood. He says, we think of heaven as a pleasure factory rather than life with God. We think of salvation as being able to avoid pain rather than being made right with God, others, ourselves, and creation. We think of the gospel as the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven rather than the announcement that life with God is now possible on earth through Jesus. What's the gospel? How much do I need to do to get into heaven? He goes, no, it's not that about that at all. It's the announcement that God's available to you right now if you want to walk with him, you want to, you want to attach yourself to Jesus. We think of faith as what we're supposed to believe rather than the mental map about how things are. That we are to carry with us and inevitably live from. You get that? He's, what he's saying here is this is not a book this is so important. This is not a book of shoulds. This is a book of, of what is. And if we get this into our head, that's the map that we live from. And when we live that way, it integrates us with God and with ourselves and with others in all creation. It's truth. He says we think of faith as what we're supposed to believe rather than this mental map. 
We think of Christians as people who have got the heaven job done while we think of, catch this, discipleship, the idea of following him, the idea of getting to know him. We think of discipleship as an optional extra credit work for spiritual overachievers. Ever thought that? Yeah, yeah, faith, you know, I, as long as I have faith, that means I'm connected to God, and I'm connected to God, I'll go to heaven someday, that's all, now it's all done, I, I just go out and I get the good life, I'm going to get the stuff, or I'm going to try and avoid the pain, I'm going to... He says, no, discipleship isn't an extra credit kind of thing for overachievers, it's, it's the life of heaven lived out now. And as we walk it... We walk into heaven someday. And what seems to be a curtain that separates us from the fact that there's spiritual, there are spiritual, do you know there are spiritual beings? There are, if, if God opened your eyes to the spirit, you could see angels and there are demonic spirits. There are those, they're actually out there. Now you, you may come from a kind of a, the modern mindset that says, ah, now nah. Jesus was very clear in this and Jesus seemed to make some very strong claims about who he was, that he was God. So I think he had a pretty good mental map and idea of what it looked like out there. This whole idea of discipleship is learning to grow and to understand and to know what it means as we live through this life, it means that heaven has come into our hearts now and we are to take this blessing of heaven that he has given us in relationship to him and we're to actually introduce that and pour that out into our lives where it really matters first in our marriages, in our families, and and in our businesses and everywhere we go, everywhere we step, we bring a piece of this heaven and as we step, instead of this mental curtain or this spiritual wall that we can't see through, eventually this becomes so light and so hazy. In fact, when people die, and I've had this experience, when they die, they sometimes begin to go, I see these angels and, I, and they see this because now at that point the realm is so thin. Little children sometimes have the ability to see that. The whole idea is that we live in this place now and we walk with God now because as we walk with God now, we walk into a future with him for eternity where then it will be pain free and we'll have all the stuff we want and need rightly ordered in our life. And Jesus was quite clear about this. He looked at a whole harassed group of people one day. They were worried. They were stressed out. They were trying so hard to get the good life. More, more, own more, be more, whatever it was. And he said, look at the birds, the flowers. Just see your heavenly father and how he cares for them. Next week I want to talk about some of this. The goodness of God. That's where the good life is rooted. It's in the goodness of God. So I really would love for you to come back and, and, and learn more about that. Learn from that. He says, God knows what you need. Seek God first, he says. Listen, to seek God first in his righteousness. And, and that doesn't mean to be self-righteous. It means to seek righteousness in the sense of uh, that which is right and good and true. As you seek that, then everything else is just added to you. It is God. If, if, if the truth is that God wants this shalom good life for you and, and, the, and, and the truth is it's in relationships that it's connected first to him, the key is that it's connected to him and you need to be connected to Jesus. Dallas Willard had said, human beings were created to live in reciprocal rootedness. So stay with me. What's reciprocal? We are spiritually alive. We're made to be spiritually alive. We're spirits, ultimately. 
This is evident to any objective observer, regardless of what they think about God or religion. But it means we require a transcendent connection through which the inner unseen person, which is our mind and our will, can be nourished and sustained. Apart from that, we wither. With this, we flourish. And we enjoy the good life. As he said, go flourish. And that's the secret. Because one night prior to Jesus' death with his disciples, he turned to him one more time and said one of these statements that would just get you locked up. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's the reciprocal rootedness. If you, if you begin to follow me and live with me and you begin to want to know me and you get to know my word and that mental map begins to start really become the landscape of your mental mind and life, whoever lives in me, he says, and I in him, shall produce a large crop of fruit. For apart from me, you, can do, you can't do a thing. So salvation is mostly a matter of, it's not mostly, catch this, not mostly a matter of relocation, getting to heaven someday. It's a matter of transformation today. And it doesn't consist primarily of ending up in the right place, okay? I'm not saying it, that is part of it, but it really doesn't consist in ending in the right place. It consists being made into the right person, which only God can do. And it's this that allows the good life to flow in all our relationship, and it's this that opens us up to the good life as God intends, which is far more than stuff, and this life is available even in the most difficult life experiences. So, I've asked Roy Wetterstrom if he would come and take a moment to share. Um, I, uh, I had breakfast with Roy, oh, I don't know, about a year or so ago, and and it was after Roy had gone through some difficult times, and and uh, he, and I, I I just listened to him, and I thought, man, someday I want him to share his story. So, Roy, would you share? Yes, I hope that's high enough. All right. Well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, that message really speaks to me. And um, so I was uh, raised along with my two brothers by wonderful parents who provided a safe home for us, and really modeled what a loving marriage looks like. Although we went to church on most Sundays, Jesus was not part of our day-to-day lives. In the eighth grade, I was given an opportunity to work in our school office and was caught stealing some cash. My parents grounded me for a month. As I stewed down in my bedroom, I had lots of time to think. I felt angry, defiant, Sorry for myself. But as the days wore on, I began to feel this pit growing in my stomach. I knew something wasn't right. I was trying to reconcile my thoughts and my deeds with the person that I wanted to be. I was broken. And then it hit me. I got down on my knees, and I prayed for forgiveness, and I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I immediately felt the Holy Spirit come into me, and I felt a freedom unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. I finally had a compass with a true north that has guided me in my life ever since. After graduating from high school, I earned a finance degree at the University of Minnesota. My master plan was to get a job in banking and then figure out which business I would start. Right as I was graduating from the university, 
I met my future wife, Emily. She was a smart, beautiful, and she just loved the Lord. We were married in 1988. I had a good job in commercial banking, and she was pursuing her master's degree when my million-dollar idea finally came to me, building financial models for Wall Street. Emily and I moved to New York City on Christmas Day, 1989. Within five years, my business was successful enough to allow us to move back to Minnesota, although I maintained an apartment in New York. Our son David was born in 1996 and our daughter Margaret in 1999. The the events of September 11, 2001, rocked my world. My family was safely back in Minnesota, but I was in my apartment in New York City right across the street from the World Trade Center. I didn't understand what was happening when the power went out and my entire building started shaking and was engulfed in a cloud of debris that was so thick that it blocked out 100% of the sunlight. I got down on my knees and I prayed for Jesus to take me home if my time had come. When the dust had settled, I was absolutely overcome with grief when I saw what happened right across the street from me. I had friends who died that day. The entire experience affected me profoundly. I didn't have a peaceful night's sleep for six months. What I leaned on is that God is in control, even as this broken world careens out of control. Throughout the 1990s, I achieved incredible success in every aspect of my life. I had a wonderful wife, great kids, a thriving business, professional accolades, and financial independence beyond my wildest imaginations. This allowed us to endow scholarships, to support many ministries, and to build two beautiful homes. Life was good. Over the course of several years, I made the mistake of investing too heavily in real estate. In 2008, the downturn in the market hit us hard, and we were wiped out financially. We lost both of our homes and had to sell most of our possessions. My professional reputation was that of a business guru, and that's how I saw myself. It hit me hard. I was humiliated. I had let everybody down especially my family. Emily was hurting, but she gave me incredible grace and forgiveness. We went through a humbling process together and knew that the Lord was teaching us some important things. He taught me that my worth doesn't come from my reputation or my checking account, my banking account, and and my identity and worth ultimately come from him. He has forgiven me, and that gave me the power to forgive myself. We adapted nicely to our new lifestyle. Emily had a teaching job she loved, and I had a new business that was on the path to success. But we had yet to face our biggest challenge. Three years ago, my Emily was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She became terribly ill but had grace, dignity, and strength throughout the entire process. And it's clear to me where that strength came from. Emily loved the Lord. She believed with all her heart that she would be healed right up until the very end. But she knew that if she wasn't healed, that God had prepared a place for her, and that she would rejoice in going there even if it was before she wanted to. 
Emily died peacefully in her sleep eight months after her diagnosis, with me by her side holding her hand. David, Margaret, and I were hurting, but had a peace from knowing that Emily was with her Lord and Savior up in heaven. I spent a period of time in shock, trying to process what was happening in my life. I was not taking good care of myself and was in a rut when the Lord inspired me to read a book that changed my life. I started exercising regularly, eating healthy, reading my Bible, and journaling every morning. I went from a hazy outlook on life to really seeing the possibilities. God was doing a work in me. A year ago, I met Laura. She has brought a light into my life I wasn't sure I would ever find again. She loves the Lord, and she loves my kids, and they love her. She also has a wonderful 11-year-old daughter, Audrey. We're getting married here next month, right here at Wayzata Free. My life has had its share of ups and downs, but it's a good life. The Lord has been my constant companion and has allowed me to endure things that were unthinkable. I've had a peace and a joy from the knowledge that God loves me and works all things for my good, even though I don't always understand it. God is good. He has blessed me with a rich, rewarding life, and I am so thankful that he taught me that my worth and joy come from him and not my circumstances. So now you know I wanted Roy to share. I just sat there and I just listened to your honesty and your humility and the way you have honored God. Um, a few will probably will experience some of the tragedies and difficulties you've experienced in life, and yet uh, I know you would say it was because you were rightly rooted to God. And I, 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 there, I had a couple of thoughts, and we won't, I'm just going to mention this to you as we leave in part today, but we talked about understanding your destiny, which is something you know, that this life isn't the end when you went through all that with Emily. And, uh, and knowing that there is more to this life, but God's called you to live this one fully. And, and then um, I think another thing that, that really hit me through this whole process is how you develop deep friendships and, and maybe just say just a, a word about how important community was for you. Well, the, commu- the community was just critical. Um, we were just surrounded by a faith community through um, our school, where our kids went, where Emily worked, uh, the church family here, and uh, both Emily, through her process, had some uh, just a support network that was incredible, as did I. And I can't even imagine uh, what, what things it would have been like without that. I, I, we talk here about these commitments of worship, community, and serving, and I have to say how important community is to have people around you in those times of difficulty. The last thing is just knowing your purpose. We live in a world today where I think everyone's telling you, you know know your purpose by getting to know what's inside you. And there's, there's truth to that. But the reality is to really know your purpose in life, it's really important to go back to the creator who created you and begin to start saying, God, I want to be so connected to you, and to begin to say, Jesus, yeah, I'm going to follow you. So all I want you to do, I'm going to ask you to stand, I'm going to ask the band to come, and all I want to do in concluding today is ask you to, as we go through this series, to ask yourself, and maybe talk with someone else, what's in your heart? What's the good life? What, what are you afraid of? 
What are you after? And then the other thing I want you to do, we talk about taking your next step to know, follow, and become like Jesus. What is that next step for you to follow Jesus more closely? We're kind of heading into the fall. You have all kinds of demands on your time. You've already made commitments to other things. You may want to just stop right now and say, what is the one thing this next fall, these next few months, if one thing, if I'm going to step closer to Jesus and follow him more closely, what do I need to do? Or if you've never done that before, I would ask you to come and talk to me. I invite you to do so, to know Jesus as your Savior. Um, and to hear, you know, like he said, the Holy Spirit came in and, and that was an anchoring, changing, transforming moment in your life. So, Father, we come before you. And as I stand before our people, Lord, we, we are bearers of your image. We are bringers of the good life. And we are called to live in the goodness of that shalom, that, that integrity and wholeness of life and that, that maturing, deepening sense of peace. Knowing you and, and knowing ourselves and knowing one another and just enjoying the created order around us. We give you thanks. God, I pray for people as they wrestle and talk through this decision and think about what maybe the step is that would be important in their life, that you would guide them and speak to their hearts and you would show up in ways where they go, this is good. This life with its pain and with this call to try and get distracted by stuff, with you, it is good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.